Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Friend, wrapped in cloth of gold and buried with great pomp in the Dominican church at Langley. Archbishop Reynolds officiated, assisted by and widespread flooding across Europe, which would continue unceasing until the autumn and lead to another failed harvest and the worst recorded famine in European history. To add to Edward's troubles, there were rumours of a Scottish invasion of Ireland. At the end of April, he sent Roger Mortimer back there as lieutenant, and not a moment too soon, for in May... In the interests of building up a Celtic alliance against England, Robert Bruce sent his brother Edward to free the Irish from English rule. In June, Dundalk fell to Edward Bruce, and in September he took Ulster. Between June the 5th and the 23rd, Edward and Isabella visited the new town of Winchelsea in Sussex, which had been built by Edward I on a grid plan much like his continental bastides, to replace the old town that had been swept away into the sea during a storm. The royal couple perhaps stayed at the newly founded Franciscan Priory. There was no sign of famine here, for the town was prosperous and the king and queen were plied with food and wines. Isabella attended Mass in the parish church, which was dedicated to Thomas a Becket, and her chaplain made offerings in her name. Then she and Edward moved south to Hastings, where they stayed in the castle and made gifts to the chapel there, in which they were entertained by two harpists and a fiddler. The royal couple then made yet another pilgrimage to Canterbury before returning to Westminster, where they stayed until at least July 7th. By now... The dread famine held England in its grip. The price of grain had soared to an unprecedented level, and it was reported that on August 9th, St. Lawrence's Eve, even the king and queen found it hard to obtain bread when they passed through St. Albans. Because of the scarcity of food, the council ordered that no one below the rank of earl was to have more than two dishes at each meal but this only resulted in lords reducing their households and casting out unneeded servants to starve. Because there was so little fodder for cattle, disease spread and herds had to be culled. It was not uncommon to see the bodies of animals lying dead and rotting in the flooded fields. This led to further shortages of meat and dairy products, and misery such as our age has never seen for many of the king's subjects. In Northumbria, dogs and horses and other unclean things were eaten. And there were reports of desperate people committing murder to get food, and even of instances of cannibalism. The evidence suggests that in some parts the death rate from starvation was as high as 10%. In the towns, trade suffered, and many people lost their livelihoods. Edward passed statutes to lower the price of provisions, 
but he could do nothing to relieve the serious dearth that was now affecting the land. On August 12th, Warwick died, greatly lamented. His friends claimed he had been poisoned, probably in an attempt to discredit the king. Warwick's passing left Lancaster in a position of unchallenged supremacy. Only four days earlier, on August 8th, Edward had appointed him king's lieutenant in the north. Lancaster had now replaced most of the royal officials and sheriffs with his own men and was enjoying widespread support as the self-proclaimed champion of the ordinances. He controlled the administration, issued orders and pardons, granted petitions and made appointments. Before the king acted, he was obliged to seek Lancaster's advice. But as Lancaster preferred to hold himself aloof from the council, Edward was forced to treat with him almost as another sovereign prince, sending envoys to him at Kenilworth or Donington. Isabella, the daughter of the autocratic Philip IV, cannot have relished seeing her husband's royal authority thus subverted. Soon afterwards, there came news from France that Marguerite of Burgundy had died in her prison on August 14th. Rumour had it that she'd been strangled, smothered or starved to death. And rumour may not have lied, for it was imperative that King Louis have an heir. And on August 19th, only five days after his wife's demise, he married his distant cousin, Clemence of Hungary, who rivaled Isabella in being reputed the most beautiful princess in Europe. She was crowned with him ten days later at Reims. September found Edward and Isabella at the 12th century Augustinian Priory at Barnwell in Northamptonshire, which boasted an important royal hospice. Later that month they visited Lincoln and, in October, were at Clipstone, the royal hunting lodge in Sherwood Forest. In December, Isabella stayed behind whilst Edward went to meet his barons at Doncaster. They were also apart at Christmas, which the king spent rowing in the Cambridge Fens with a great concourse of simple people to refresh his spirit, and even swimming with this silly company in the cold weather, which only aroused the derision of the barons who openly expressed their scorn for such childish frivolities. That December of 1315, there was dire news from Ireland. Mortimer had been utterly defeated by Edward Bruce at the Battle of Kells in Meath. English rule had now virtually collapsed in Dublin, and Mortimer came hurrying back to England to obtain reinforcements, arriving at court by January 17th. But the king, needing his support against Lancaster, kept him in England. Mortimer was therefore present when Parliament assembled at Lincoln late in January. But Lancaster didn't deign immediately to grace it with his presence, despite pressing concerns over the famine and the Scots. Instead, he arrived three weeks late on February 12th. Nevertheless, a compliant Parliament appointed him chief councillor to the King, much against Edward's will, for the Lords had agreed that the King should undertake no important matter without the consent of the Council. At this time, Edward and Isabella were staying at Somerton Castle at Navenby, eight miles south of Lincoln. The castle had been built in 1281-82 to 82 and had been visited by the King before his accession. Whilst staying there, Edward granted fifty pounds and lands in Ponthieu to Isabella's nurse, Théophania de Saint-Pierre, perhaps on her retirement. He also rewarded his own nurse, Alistair Leegrave, for her good service to Isabella. Around this time, Lancaster also gave £92 in gifts to Théophania and the Queen's French servants. By February, Isabella knew herself to be pregnant again. On March 27th, a new litter was delivered to her so that she could travel in comfort, for breeding women were not supposed to ride. 
In April, Parliament met again at Westminster, but soon afterwards Lancaster withdrew from the King's Council. From now on, he would spend most of his time on his estates in the north, keeping state like a king, but doing very little to maintain effective government. He was proving to be a reluctant, indecisive and not particularly able ruler and was losing support, thanks to his own inertia and incompetence and Edward's relentless intrigues. It didn't help that the famine was still raging, the Scots were still raiding the north with impunity, the Welsh were rebelling and the kingdom was generally in a ferment of unrest, with private wars breaking out between the barons. But Lancaster repeatedly neglected state business in order to attend to his own interests. He had muzzled his king, but had failed to offer a credible alternative. The principles he had claimed to uphold had been seemingly cast aside, and his sole purpose, it now appeared, was to control and humiliate the king. Mortimer, who had crushed the rebellion in Wales, which had been led by a patriot called Llewellyn Bren, had returned to court by April 21st, but was back in the West between May and August. Then came the unwelcome news that Edward Bruce had had himself crowned High King of Ireland on May 1st. There were more bad tidings when Isabella's brother, King Louis, died on June 5th at Vincennes of pleurisy or pneumonia, contracted through drinking iced wine after getting overheated playing tennis. He left his widow, Queen Clemence, pregnant. Until her child was born, France would be without a king, the first time this had occurred since 987, when the Capetian dynasty was founded. Hence, Isabella's second brother, Philip, Count of Poitou, was appointed Governor of France during the gestation and minority of the future sovereign. By June 20th, Isabella had heard of Louis's passing and retired to Mortlake in Surrey to nurse her grief. With Lancaster out of the way and public discontent with his misrule mounting, the king was beginning to reassert himself. In June, he began to restore the victims of the Lancastrian purge, including the elder dispenser, who now returned to court, and on July 1st, he replenished Isabella's income, confirming all grants of land made to her since 1314 and increasing the allowances he made for her household. The king was also planning to lead a new campaign against the Scots in October, and on July 20th and 21st, he arranged for the body to pay the Queen's expenses during his coming absence. In the hope of further reasserting his authority, he wrote to the Pope, asking if he might be crowned again with holy oil brought to England by Thomas a Becket. The Pope, a wiser man than Edward, could foresee how provocative such an act would be, and refused. Late in July... Isabella went to Eltham to rest before her confinement, while the King went north to Lincoln for the next session of Parliament. He was now doing his best to woo Lancaster back to court, hoping to enlist his support for the coming Scottish campaign. But after Parliament had met at Lincoln on July 29th, he and Lancaster engaged in a furious quarrel over Scotland that scuppered all hopes of an invasion. On August 15th, Isabella bore a second son, John, at Eltham. The king had resolved to make this happy event an occasion for reconciliation with Lancaster, and immediately after the birth, the queen dispatched her valet, Goodwin Horton, with letters to Lancaster and John Salmon, Bishop of Norwich, requesting them to come to Eltham to stand sponsors for her son, John. The gesture had been made but the response was an unforgivable snub, for there is no record of Lancaster turning up for the christening. The infant prince was baptised on the 20th in the Queen's Chapel at Eltham, where the font was specially draped with cloth of gold and a costly and rare piece of turkey carpet. These cloths had been acquired by John de Fontenoy, the clerk to the Queen's Chapel, and came from the King's wardrobe, which also supplied the Queen's tailor Stephen Toloys 
with five pieces of white velvet to make her a robe for her churching. Edward gave Isabella some jewellery and paid forty pounds for the ceremony. The king rewarded Sir Eubulo de Montebus, Isabella's steward, with a hundred pounds for riding to York and bringing him the joyful news of the happy delivery of John of Eltham, as the prince would be known. He also rewarded Isabella, bestowing on her various grants of land and precious items, supplied on credit by the body, and arranged for prayers to be said for her and John in the house of the Dominicans in York. On September 9th, fearing an armed confrontation with Lancaster, the king ordered Isabella to join him in York with all speed. She left Eltham before September 20th, was at Buntingford in Hertfordshire on the 22nd, and arrived in York just five days later. Edward, who had waited anxiously for news of her coming, rewarded the messenger who heralded her imminent arrival. The king and queen stayed in York until October, when they returned south. By now, Edward's trust in Isabella's judgment was such that he allowed her to attend council meetings. On October 9th, the Bishop of Durham died, and both Edward and Isabella put forward their own candidates for the vacant see. Edward wanted Henry de Stanford, the prior of Finkel, and Isabella, influenced by Henry de Beaumont and Isabella de Vesey, chose their brother, the lavish and gleeful Louis de Beaumont, a choice that seemed deliberately calculated to anger Lancaster. There were other contenders, too, nominated by Lancaster himself and Hereford. But on October 19th, the King commissioned Pembroke to ensure that either his own or the Queen's man was appointed. Pembroke sent a number of barons to Durham Cathedral to ensure that the King's wishes were complied with. But the Queen was angry to learn that, on November 6th, the monks of Durham had chosen Henry de Stanford, and hastening to the king, she fell on her knees and begged him to secure the sea for Louis de Beaumont, urging that Louis would be a stone wall against the Scots. Ignoring the protests of the chapter of Durham that Louis was illiterate, Edward capitulated to his wife, refused to sanction the appointment of Stanford, and made a complaint to Avignon. That autumn, the Mortimers, uncle and nephew, were riding high at court. At the beginning of October, Mortimer of Chirk had been reappointed Justiciar of North Wales with almost sovereign powers. And in November, having persuaded Edward to allow him to deal with Edward Bruce, Roger Mortimer was made King's Lieutenant of Ireland and began preparations to return there with an army. There was more sad news from France. On November 14th or 15th, Queen Clemence had given birth to a son, King John I, the posthumous. But the precious infant died at the age of only seven or eight days and was buried near his father in the Abbey of Saint-Denis. He was succeeded by his uncle, Isabella's second brother, who now ascended the throne as Philip V. Philip V, nicknamed the Tall or the Fair, was another king such as his father had been, good-looking, intelligent, decisive, harsh and ruthless. Predictably, there was talk that he had hastened his little nephew's death, which may not have been without justification. At the beginning of December, the king ordered the exchequer to pay Isabella a further £366.13 shillings and fourpence, £366.67p, a year, less the income from her English lands. However, the barons of Exchequer were tardy in making payments, and twice in January the king and queen had to chase them. Christmas that year was spent at Clipstone. Roger Mortimer was present, and stayed until after the Feast of the Epiphany. But it was a Christmas overshadowed by conflict, for Lancaster was making trouble, and England seemed once again to be on the verge of civil war. On January 9, 1317, 
Philip V was crowned with Jeanne of Burgundy at Reims. But there were still those who asserted that his niece, the dispossessed Jeanne of Navarre, had a better title to the throne than he. The next month, therefore, he summoned an assembly of the three estates and invoked what he was pleased to call the Salic Law, which allegedly dated from the time of the early Frankish kings, declaring that a woman cannot succeed to the Kingdom of France. This law was of dubious legality and certainly contravened the normal feudal laws of inheritance. It was in time to have far-reaching implications for Isabella and her heirs. As for Jeanne, who was only six, Philip placated her supporters by agreeing that she could succeed her father as Queen of Navarre. Robert Bruce himself landed in Ireland in January, and in February he and his brother established themselves in Ulster. But when they pressed south and came within five miles of Dublin, Mortimer halted their advance. That same month, the king and queen moved to the palatial royal hunting lodge at Clarendon, which stood on a hill in the midst of a forest near Salisbury and dated from the 11th century. Like most of the other royal residences, it had been improved by Henry III. There were Gothic windows with gable heads in Isabella's chambers, and one window sported a stained-glass depiction of the Virgin and Child. In the Queen's wardrobe, which was beneath her private chapel, dedicated to St. Catherine, there were murals showing Richard I fighting with Saladin, and scenes from the history of Antioch. In the Queen's hall, the marble-columned mantle was sculpted with the relief of the twelve months of the year. Isabella attended the council meeting that took place at Clarendon on February 9th, during which Edward and his supporters accused Lancaster of plotting with the Scots against him. Lancaster denied it, but there were many who had noticed that, during their repeated northern raids, the Scots had left his estates untouched, and who openly speculated that he meant to enlist Robert Bruce's help against Edward, which would have been treason of the First Order. On that same February 9th, in response to the Queen's pleas, and also, it appears, some hefty bribes, including gifts worth £1,904 from the King and Queen, the accommodating Pope John provided Louis de Beaumont to the See of Durham, Louis having obligingly agreed to take reading lessons. Nevertheless, when he was enthroned on March 26, 1318, he was still barely able to understand the Latin. Later that month, another bishopric, that of Rochester, became vacant, and again Isabella involved herself in a contest to fill it, competing with the king in providing candidates. Edward wrote to Pope John in support of Harmo de Heath, and Isabella made her plea to the pontiff on behalf of her own confessor, John de Chissois. She also enlisted the support of her brother, King Philip, and Pembroke. On hearing how she had set herself up in opposition to her husband, the Pope and his cardinals marvelled, but put it down to Edward's inconsistency. This time, however, Isabella did not get her own way and on March 18th, Harmo de Heath was elected Bishop of Rochester. In April, the King and Queen visited Ramsey in Huntingdonshire, where they stayed in the Abbey Guesthouse dedicated to St Thomas of Canterbury, which had been built around 1180. The famine had now abated, and England was once more becoming fruitful with a manifold abundance of good things and there was encouraging news from Ireland, for that spring Robert Bruce returned to Scotland, and soon afterwards Mortimer defeated his old enemies, the treacherous Lacys. He then set about rebuilding the English administration and persuading the king's Irish subjects to return to their obedience. April saw the four-year-old Prince Edward's first public appearance. 
Very little is known about the prince's childhood, apart from the fact that he spent much of it at Eltham with his brother John in the prince's tower, and that one of his noble companions was a griffin of Wales. But we do know something about his education. He was taught by royal clerks, the most celebrated of whom was Richard de Berry, who was made Bishop of Durham by his former pupil in 1333. Berry was a great bibliophile and scholar, and in his time served as an ambassador to France, Hainaut, and Germany. Under his auspices, the prince learned to read and write. His is the first surviving autograph of an English king, and became fluent in Norman French, French, Latin, and English. He also developed a working knowledge of German and Flemish. There is abundant evidence that he acquired proficiency in the admired aristocratic skills of riding, swordsmanship, jousting, hunting, hawking, coursing, dancing, singing, and shooting with a longbow. He was brought up to be articulate, courteous, and affable with all. No king could have asked for a more promising son and heir. Parliament met at Westminster on April 15th. On the same date, twenty pounds was paid to one brother Richard de Brumfield for three days' entertainment for the Lord the King, the Lady the Queen, and the Lord Edward their son. On April 22nd, Edward granted Isabella the manors of Wallingford, which had belonged to Gaveston, and St. Valerie. Then, scandal erupted. In May, Lancaster's Countess, Alice de Lacey, eloped with her lover, Eubulio Lestrange, a squire in the service of the Earl of Surrey, Lancaster's enemy, whose knight, Sir Richard de St. Martin, had abducted her from her unfaithful and unprepossessing husband. Alice immediately claimed Surrey's protection, while Lestrange lost no time in proclaiming to the world that he had slept with her before her marriage, and in so doing severely compromised her reputation. There had been bad blood between Lancaster and Surrey for years, but the abduction of Lancaster's wife, who was irrevocably and publicly shamed, was a deadly insult that the Earl was determined to avenge, and he now entered into a destructive and futile struggle with his rival to retrieve his wife and his lost honour. He began by ravaging and plundering Surrey's lands and castles in Yorkshire, and in so doing plunged them both into a bloody and disruptive private war. To make matters worse, Lancaster suspected that the king and queen had actually encouraged his wife to leave him, and that they had plotted her abduction at the council held at Clarendon in February. Edward feebly forbade Lancaster to resort to violence, and advised him to seek a remedy in law only. But this made no difference whatsoever, even though the earl was warned that if he persisted in his private war, the king would either have his head or consign him to prison. Lancaster, in turn, declared that he would not come to court because he feared treachery. It now seemed unlikely that Edward and his cousin would ever be reconciled. At Whitson, as was customary, the king and queen held court at Westminster, but as they were feasting, a mysterious woman, adorned with a theatrical dress, entered the hall on a fine horse, and, after the manner of players, made a circuit round the tables, before approaching the dais and presenting the king with a letter. Before he could respond, she bowed, turned her horse, and left the hall. Thinking this was some kind of courtly game, Edward commanded that the letter be opened and read aloud for the amusement of the company. But he was mortified and embarrassed when it proved to be a damning indictment of his rule. The woman was quickly arrested and revealed that a certain knight had set her up to deliver the letter. When questioned, this knight insisted that he had acted in the interests of the king's honour and in the sincere hope that his sovereign would heed the complaints of his subjects. However, 
He emphasized that he had meant the letter to be read in private. Edward was impressed with the man's sincerity and integrity. He rewarded him with abundant gifts and set the woman free. But he paid little or no attention to their grievances. On July 7th, Edward II effectively founded what later became known as King's Hall at Cambridge, which was refounded by Henry VIII as Trinity College in 1546. Edward's foundation was for the education of twelve scholars, who he probably hoped would become loyal servants of the crown. In 1318, the Pope granted King's Hall the status of a university college. In July, the King and Queen set out for Nottingham. They spent some days at St. Albans Abbey, where Edward blessed and touched twenty-two scrofulous persons suffering from the King's evil, in the hope of curing them. A royal duty that would be faithfully carried out by every future sovereign until the time of Queen Anne. After this, the King and Queen moved on to Bedford, then to the royal manor of Kingscliff in Northamptonshire. Parliament met at Nottingham on July 18th. On the 25th, the King granted Isabella Gaveston's old county of Cornwall. Later in the year, in November, the Queen would also be assigned revenues from London. In September, after visiting Lincoln, the royal couple stayed at Tickhill Castle in Yorkshire. On the 10th, at Isabella's request, the King confirmed charters that had been granted to the Order of Prémontré at Blancheland in the Cotentin in Normandy. Then it was on to York, where the royal couple stayed once more with the Franciscans. There now arose a property dispute that was to have an immense bearing not only on Isabella's future, but also on national politics and the lives of the King's subjects. When Gilbert de Clare, Earl of Gloucester, had been killed in 1314 at Bannockburn, he had left no child to succeed him, and hence the great and ancient earldom of Gloucester looked set to be divided up between the Earl's co-heirs, his three sisters. However, his countess immediately announced that she was pregnant, so the matter was left in abeyance until such time as she should bear her child. Three years later, even she had to concede that there would be no baby. And in November 1317, the earldom was divided up between the earl's sisters, all of whom were now married to men high in the king's favour. The eldest sister, Eleanor, now twenty-five, was married to Hugh Le Dispenser the Younger, a fine figure of a man who was at least three years younger than the king and had been a member of his household when he was Prince of Wales. He had fought at Bannockburn in 1314, had been first summoned to Parliament in 1315 and had again served in Scotland in 1317. While his father had been a consistently loyal supporter of the king, the younger dispenser had aligned himself with the baronial party, which had long been hostile to the elder Hugh. He was proud, cunning, aggressively acquisitive and self-serving, and extremely capable. He could be brutal when provoked. In 1315, he had illegally seized Tunbridge Castle, thinking that it belonged to Gloucester's widow, and then had to give it back when it transpired that it was actually held by the Archbishop of Canterbury. And in 1316, for reasons that are not clear, he physically attacked one of the lords at the Lincoln Parliament. The royal wardrobe accounts show that Dispenser's wife, Eleanor de Clare, was clearly a favourite of her uncle, the King, who paid her living expenses throughout his reign, a privilege not extended to her two sisters. The second sister, Margaret de Clare, aged 24, had been married to Piers Gaveston, but was now the wife of Hugh de Audley, one of the King's household knights. The third sister, Elizabeth, aged 22, had just married her third husband, Roger Damery, another household knight who had served with distinction at Bannockburn. Normally, 
where there was more than one heiress, an estate was divided into equal shares. But in November 1317, Hugh Dispenser was allowed to claim Glamorgan, the largest and richest share of the Clare inheritance, ostensibly because he was married to the eldest sister. The truth was that he was already embarked on a meteoric rise to royal favour, thanks, no doubt, to the influence of his wife, and was rapidly becoming skilled at manipulating the king. Audley had to be content with Newport and Netherwind, and Damery got Usk. But Dispenser wasn't satisfied with his share. He meant to have the rest of the Gloucester inheritance. And he now set out to get it, by fair means or foul. In 1317 he attempted unsuccessfully to seize from Audley the lordship of Glenfluch, which had once been part of Glamorgan. He set traps for his co-heirs. Thus, if he could manage it, each would lose his share through false accusations, and he alone would obtain the whole earldom. For nearly four years now, Lancaster had been in the ascendant, and he and the king had wrangled and struggled for power, with barons siding behind one or the other, mostly, to begin with, behind Lancaster. But Lancaster had proved that he was no more capable than Edward of good government. Meanwhile, the king had been steadily building up his own court party, which included Damery, Audley, Surrey, the Dispensers, and William de Montacute, another loyal household knight. Lancaster would certainly have regarded Isabella as being affiliated to this court party, since she had recently extended her patronage to several men who were dependents of Edward's principal supporters. Roger Damery, who was, naturally, anxious to receive his proper share of the Declare inheritance, was gaining rapidly in favour with the king, and became especially close to Edward at this time. But again, Edward displayed poor judgment in allowing such a man to influence him. In September 1317, thanks to the efforts of two emissaries from the Pope, Lancaster had grudgingly agreed to return to court. But the king, egged on by Damery, who had been ousted from the constableship of two royal castles by Lancaster, had raised an army at York and marched provocatively in full battle order past the Earl's castle at Pontefract. Although Lancaster ignored the challenge, the king's action effectively scuppered any chance of a reconciliation between them. In fact, civil war appeared to be a very real possibility. Pembroke, remembering Gaveston, now realised the necessity for controlling Damery, and on November 24th he entered into a compact with the new favourite and with an influential baron, Bartholomew Lord Baddlesmere, with all agreeing that they would support and consult each other when advising the king. Their alliance has been erroneously described as a middle party. But it was more of a damage limitation exercise. Nevertheless, it did moderate the king, and provided an alternative to Lancaster's misrule. And Damery's influence ensured that by the spring of 1318, Pembroke and Baddlesmere had gained greater credit with Edward. By then, others, including Arundel, Hereford, Surrey, the Mortimers, and Archbishop Reynolds, had tired of Lancaster's complacency and aligned themselves with Pembroke. The King and Queen kept the Christmas of 1317 at Westminster. Isabella was once again pregnant. There was more sad news for the Queen in the new year of 1318, for on February 14th her aunt, Queen Marguerite, died at Marlborough Castle. Isabella was probably present with the King at her funeral later that month. Wrapped in a Franciscan habit, Marguerite was buried before the high altar in the unfinished choir of the Greyfriars in Newgate, London, the church she had herself partially rebuilt, enlarged and endowed, and in which the heart of Eleanor of Provence, Edward's grandmother, had been interred in 1291. 
A beautiful tomb would be raised to the memory of Queen Marguerite, but it was defaced and then lost after the Reformation. Isabella, too, had a special affection for this church, and not just because of her affinity with the Franciscan order. It seems that Marguerite had asked for the new building to be modelled on the lines and scale of the Franciscan Church of the Cordeliers in Paris, which had been founded by St. Louis around 1250, and in which Isabella's own mother, Jeanne of Navarre, had been laid to rest. It's no coincidence that there was a chapel dedicated to St. Louis at Newgate. It was Isabella who would pay handsomely towards the completion of the London church, which, when finished in 1348, would measure a grand 300 feet long by 89 feet wide by 64 feet high, making it second only to St. Paul's in size. It was a beautiful, light and spacious building, having fifteen bays with two clear-story windows in each and several chapels leading off the aisles, which had slender piers with octagonal bases supporting a tall arcade of pointed arches. Isabella herself paid for the glazing of the window at the east end behind the altar. In all, she spent about seventy pounds on Greyfriars. Thanks to the patronage of Isabella, Marguerite, and other royal ladies, Greyfriars at Newgate remained the most prestigious Franciscan house in England and the most fashionable church in London for the next two centuries, and many notable persons chose to be buried there. The death of Marguerite at last released the dower lands and manors of the Queens of England, which now reverted to Isabella. On February 23rd, the King commanded the Exchequer to list all the late Queen's properties, and that same day, Isabella surrendered all her holdings to the Crown, pending the new settlement. On March 5th, thanks to the efficacy of William de Montacute, she was granted her permanent dower lands, and on the 6th, Pontieu and Montreuil were restored to her but she would have to wait until October 30th to receive back the county of Cornwall. On March 20th, when the royal couple were at Clarendon, the king arranged for the arrears of the queen's income to be paid to her and ordered the body to cover her expenses in the interim. Her treasurer was ordered to keep close watch on the expenditure of her servants from now on. Edward also made a grant to the Priory of Ivy Church at Isabella's insistence. There was good and bad news from beyond England's borders. In Ireland, by March 1318, Roger Mortimer had stamped out most of the resistance to the English rule, but on March 26th, Bruce delivered a crushing blow to the English by seizing the strategic fortress of Berwick, thus depriving his enemies of their traditional bridgehead into Scotland. The Scots followed up this triumph by impudently raiding as far south as Yorkshire. At this time, the king was in no position to attempt to recover Berwick, having insufficient money or men. It was at this perilous juncture that, thanks to Pembroke's conciliatory influence, Edward reached a preliminary settlement with Lancaster, but it was to be systematically sabotaged by Edward's new court favourites, Damery, Audley and Montacute, who objected vehemently to Lancaster's insistence that the Crown resume all grants and gifts made since 1310. Had the King agreed to this, it's likely that some of Isabella's dependents would have been considerably worse off, for it's clear that Lancaster meant to stem the flow of gifts to her servants. Therefore, it would be fair to assume that the Queen, who had already suffered financially at Lancaster's hands and had since been most generously compensated by the King, was on the side of the court party. After all, she had no reason to love Lancaster and had been his enemy for at least four years now. Early in the summer... The king and queen were guests of honour at weddings at Havering Atibawa in Essex, Windsor and Woodstock. 
Edward's household roll records the provision of coins that, at the king's order, were thrown over the heads of the happy couples as they made their vows at the chapel doors. Isabella, whose confinement was approaching, retired to the royal manor of Woodstock in Oxfordshire before June 11th. Woodstock, which stood in Witchford Forest and had been recently settled on the Queen as part of her dower, had been a royal retreat and hunting box since before the conquest. But the present house, with its aisled hall, had originally been built by Henry I in the early 12th century. The stone wall surrounding the hunting park extended for seven miles, and within its precincts was a royal menagerie that housed strange beasts from far countries, notably lions, lynxes, leopards and porcupines. Henry III had remodelled the royal apartments in the 13th century. Isabella's chambers overlooked a garden with a maple tree by a pool, and she could take the air in open cloisters or walk to the spring at nearby Everswell, where there was a garden with a hundred pear trees. On June 13th, the king visited Canterbury alone. Five days later, back at Woodstock, the queen bore a daughter who was christened Eleanor after the king's mother. Edward hastened to his wife's side and paid out £333 for a feast given to celebrate her churching. After this, on June 28th, the royal couple travelled together to Northampton, where Parliament assembled in July. While they were there, Isabella became very disturbed about growing rumours that the king was a changeling. Considering the disasters of his reign and his inept rule, it's hardly surprising that people were beginning to believe such rumours. They had started when a tanner's son, John Deidrus, also known as John of Powderham, who may have been mentally unbalanced, suddenly appeared at Bowman Palace, the old royal residence in Oxford, and claimed possession of it, insisting that he was the true heir of the realm, as the son of the illustrious King Edward, who had long been dead. He declared that my Lord Edward was not of the blood royal, nor had any right to the realm, which he offered to prove by combat with him. Deidrus was tall and fair, and uncannily resembled Edward, but he was missing an ear. He claimed that when he was a baby... He had been mauled by a sow who had ripped off his ear, and that his nurse, too terrified to tell Edward I what had happened, had substituted a carter's son in his place. He himself had been reared by the carter, and the changeling as the king's son. As additional proof of Edward's humble origins, Deidrus cited his notorious love of rustic pursuits and other vanities and frivolities, that were unbecoming in a king's son. But he could offer no proof to support his tale. Edward had the impostor arrested and brought before him at Northampton. Welcome, my brother, he said with some irony. But Deidrus was in no mood to be trifled with. Thou art no brother of mine, he retorted, but falsely thou claimest the kingdom for thyself. Thou hast not a drop of blood from the illustrious Edward, and that I am prepared to prove against thee. This was outrageous, and Deidrus was put on trial for inciting sedition. At length he admitted that he was an impostor, but that he had been put up to it by the devil, appearing to him in the form of a cat. But that didn't save him from the gallows, nor from the fire that afterwards consumed his body. His cat was put to death in the same way. And that, as far as the king was concerned, was an end to the matter. But the rumour that he was a changeling had run through all the land, and Isabella had been troubled beyond measure by it. Emotionally vulnerable after childbirth, she was evidently profoundly humiliated and unsettled by Deidre's very public claims. 
There's no evidence, however, that she ever thought there was any truth in them. Even though he was now more or less politically isolated, Lancaster was again making difficulties, insisting on the removal of the new favourites, who, he warned, were worse than Gaveston. Naturally, he saw Damery and his colleagues as a dangerous threat to his position. But the king refused to send them away, and Parliament spent much of its time negotiating with Lancaster, sending emissaries as if he were the actual sovereign. On July 29th, a second delegation returned from the Earl, having made encouraging progress, at which point the Queen herself joined Pembroke and Hereford and the bishops in seeking a peace. Did Isabella at this juncture visit Lancaster to make a personal plea for his cooperation? In the records of the Duchy of Lancaster in the Public Record Office, there are three references to Preparations for the Queen's Visit to the Earl at Pontefract. They belong to 1319, but are undated. Lancaster went to considerable trouble to receive Isabella with due state. Hangings were put up in the hall, streamers were attached to the instruments of his trumpeters, and four men spent six days making trestles and benches for the hall, which suggests that the Queen was bringing a large retinue with her. However, there is no record of the visit ever taking place. Whether it did or not, as a result of the Queen's intervention, a third embassy was sent to Lancaster on August 1st. Isabella certainly played a vital part in bringing about the settlement embodied in the Treaty of Leek, which was signed on August 1318, Trevitt attests that she had vigorously orchestrated the Concord for the purpose of making peace. No doubt, she also had in mind her own financial interests. The treaty bound Edward to observe the ordinances and to dismiss his favourites, but released him from his odious tutelage to Lancaster, who had been bribed into standing down from his position of power. Instead, however... The king would have to obey the will of a council of masters under Pembroke, rather than just one. But Pembroke was a fair man, and some of his associates were loyal to Edward. The king, however, was still determined to shake off all restraints on his royal authority, and was by now a past master at playing one man off against another. As his wife... Isabella must have been aware of the king's true feelings and intentions. Five days after the treaty was signed, Edward met Lancaster on a bridge over the river Saw near Loughborough and went through the charade of giving his cousin the kiss of peace, having granted him a full pardon for all the offences he had committed against the peace of the realm. This effectively brought to an end the Earl's private war with Surrey. Notwithstanding Lancaster's humiliation, Edward was still utterly determined to be revenged on him for Gaveston's death, but had probably reasoned, like him, that a peaceful settlement with the moderates was the best way forward, considering how weak his position was. Edward took up residence at York on September 28th and stayed there until November Isabella was staying in the vicinity and made two visits to Beverley Minster on the 8th and the 18th of October. Soon afterwards, there arrived the welcome news of the death of Edward Bruce at the Battle of Fochet near Dundalk. By the end of the year, the Scots had left Ireland for good, and the Irish crisis was at an end. When Parliament met at York on October 28th, it endorsed the Treaty of Leek and set up a standing council of 17 headed by Pembroke. In recognition of his great achievements in Ireland, Mortimer, who was back at court by this time, was nominated to be a member, as was the elder dispenser, who was now allowed to return to the King's service despite having stood alone against the Treaty of Leek. The king had agreed not to act without this council's consent, and Mortimer was among those who stood surety for him. 
Mortimer was also chosen to sit on a commission set up by Parliament to reform the king's household. These are the first instances of his acting against Edward, and they indicate that he had now allied himself with Pembroke's party. Hewler Dispenser the Younger was also appointed to the Permanent Council, Parliament being under the impression that he too was with Pembroke. Parliament approved the recent appointment of the Younger Dispenser as Chamberlain of the King's Household. But Dispenser's allegiance was no longer to be counted upon, for with Damery out of the way, the younger Hugh rapidly took his place in the King's confidence and affections. Dispenser's preferment to the influential post of Chamberlain marks the beginning of his notorious reign as the royal favourite, while a succession of grants tracks the growth of the King's regard for him. As a man of far greater ability than Gaveston, the grasping and politically ambitious dispenser was to prove a more dangerous favourite in every way, and a far worse threat to the barons, who would come in time to fear him. As Chamberlain, dispenser had the final say on who gained access to his royal master, and, consequently, controlled patronage. Thus, he was easily able to wield power and command huge bribes. Soon, he was suspected of subverting every other influence on the king, including Pembroke's, and it was whispered that he led Edward like a cat after a straw. At this stage, however, there is no evidence that Isabella regarded Dispenser as a rival, nor that there was tension or friction between them although Isabella surely cannot have welcomed Hugh's growing ascendancy over her husband. Even if the Queen did not realise it, Dispenser, by virtue of his unique position, was already a threat to her position and her influence. Although Foissart boldly states that Dispenser was a sodomite, even it was said with the King, there is very little other direct evidence that Edward's relationship with Hugh was of a homosexual nature. Nevertheless, circumstantial evidence makes it likely. Otherwise, Dispenser could hardly have exercised such a mesmeric influence over Edward. And in 1321, Pembroke was to warn the king that he perishes on the rocks that loves another more than himself. He was certainly not referring to Edward's love for Isabella. Like his son, the elder Dispenser profited greatly by his son's rise and came to enjoy greater political power than ever. Together with the son as the driving force, the Dispensers gradually gained a dominant hold upon the king. They hired and fired household officials as they pleased, and their rapaciousness soon became legendary. Let a man displease them or own something they coveted, and he might find himself in prison or dispossessed. The York Parliament also dealt with the contentious issue of the resumption of royal grants, but Lancaster's original comprehensive demands were sidestepped, and in the end only one yeoman of the Queen's household had his grant cut. Lancaster's sole contribution in Parliament was to insist that, as hereditary steward of England, he had the right to nominate a new steward of the household to replace William de Montacute, who had been given a post in Gascony. But, demonstrating how far the mighty Earl had fallen, Parliament disagreed and, to Lancaster's fury, approved the King's appointment of Badlesmere, who had once been Lancaster's partisan. Thereafter, there was bad blood between Lancaster and Badlesmere. Civil war had been averted, and the Treaty of Leek had heralded a fragile peace that was to last for the next two years. The King and Queen stayed on in the north through November 1318, and it was now that a re-energised Edward resolved to recover Berwick and began making plans to launch an all-out attack on the Scots the following June. Then the royal pair returned south, spending Christmas at Baldock in Hertfordshire, 
On Twelfth Night, January 6th, the King and Queen distributed lavish gifts, which they could ill afford, and presided over the revelry at court. Edward generously presented a silver gilt ewer with stand and cover to the courtier who was lucky enough to be King of the Bean for the evening. His role was similar to that of the Lord of Misrule, except that he held sway only on Twelfth Night. Edward returned to York in January 1319, leaving the Earl of Norfolk as Keeper of the Realm. Isabella was in York by March, as was Dispenser's wife, Eleanor de Clare, who had been summoned by Edward to wait on her. Roger Mortimer, who had spent Christmas at Wigmore, also joined the court at York. On March 15th, the King appointed Mortimer Justiciar of Ireland. He would go there in June to keep order. It was probably during her journey north that Isabella helped to end a dispute between the abbot and townsfolk of Peterborough over who should meet the cost of repairing the town's bridge. When word was sent in the king's name that the queen and her younger son, Prince John, would be coming to stay at the abbey, the abbot hastened to repair the bridge, ready for the royal visit. Then he was put to the further expense of presenting the Queen with a gift of twenty pounds and 